Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello, welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Noah. Hi, y'all. And Lou. Hey, guys. Now, in over the past few months, we've done a couple episodes talking about uh, employees in the tech industry, particularly at uh, Google, and their efforts to organize in the absence of formal unions against their company's efforts. Uh, In Google's case, there's been issues where the company has been harassing against those who report sexual harassment within the company, and um, they've also had some defense contracts, I think, that have not gone over well with their employees. Right. There's been mass walkouts over the company's failure to respond to sexual harassment claims in a manner that is timely or responsible. And uh, employees have protested internally and externally over the company's contracts with various agencies. Uh, To make a long story short, we've been talking about Google because Google is being evil. Right, which is explicitly against their motto. The the motto that they gave off. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, forget that. Um, We also talked about how they had shut down like their internal channels for political discussion. um, Because suddenly they were being used – Against for the company, much, basically. For the reasons we just laid out. Yes. <laughs> and um, last week in the New York Times, there was an article with the headline, Google hires firm known for anti-union efforts. Uh, November 20th, uh, written by Noam Scheiber and Daisuke Wakabayashi. The firm, IRR, IRI Consultants, appears to work frequently for hospitals and other healthcare organizations. Its website advertises union vulnerability assessments and boasts about IRI's success <sighs> in helping a large national healthcare company persuade employees to avoid a union election despite the unions dedicating millions of dollars to their organizing campaigns. I'm so angry already. Mm-hmm. And we are, what, minute two? Just about, yeah. Awesome. Good timing. This is going to be great. Google's work with IRI is the latest evidence of escalation in a feud between a group of activist workers at Google and management that has tested the limits of the company's traditionally transparent, worker-friendly culture. Since Google was founded two decades ago, employees have been able to ask management tough questions at weekly meetings, and anyone who worked there could look through documents related to almost any company activity. That Google hired a consulting firm known for its anti-union work is a surprising turn in Silicon Valley. Union organization, even labor unrest, has traditionally been rare among big tech companies because their employees have usually been treated and paid well. So in other words, a union busting has been rare because companies did the reformist capitalist thing mm-hmm. of treating their employees okay enough to avoid unionization. But now that they're treating them the same way as every other company treats its workers, you have unionization efforts, you need to hire union busters. Mm-hmm. So it shouldn't be surprising. And it should be noted, there's not really been a unionization effort among Google's employees. There's mm-hmm. a lot of employees who aren't sure if that's the right direction for their complaints against the company. Because they're, they're tech workers, and tech workers, mm-hmm. as we've discussed on this show, tend to be very individualistic and libertarian about these things and tend to organize along particular issues rather than realizing that if one of them is getting screwed, they're all getting screwed. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a theme we essay all the time. Like, it's it. This is the reason they've been able to get away with this kind of conduct is because they are hiring a population that they have helped to shape into a population that is skeptical of collective action in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there have been discussions of other models of collective action, but it's still largely what you describe. Uh, now, nevertheless, company is seeking to preempt anything that might turn into a union um, by hiring this firm, which uh, employees only stumbled upon the company's relationship with uh, this IRI, according to uh, employees familiar with the discovery who spoke on the condition of anonymity because of the fear of retaliation. wonder why such an open company culture. Mm -hmm. 
article also describes how last week, Sundar Pichai, Google's chief executive, announced that Google was making its free-flowing weekly all-hands meetings a hallmark of its open culture into monthly affairs with restrictions on what can be discussed. Neat. You know what I just realized is? Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to go back to this a couple times during this episode as we talk about different things, but um, this is also a thing that happened at my workplace, and I work at a school. Yep. Um, but they also did that. Faculty meetings used to be – I mean, they're, they're still all hands, and but they used to be fairly lengthy affairs because employees would get up, ask questions, and so on. And they've become much less frequent and much more structured so that essentially there is no time for people to ask questions because you need to get out of the room at a certain point or you're forcing your employees to be there over contract. So that that's it, it's good to know that uh, Silicon Valley and uh, certain educational institutions are on the same page. Well, this is a frequent theme you come to: is <laughs> these opportunities for discussion and openness will last only as long as they are used for things the company doesn't, you know. Yeah, hate. because I think are you about to mention how they found out um, about I the? Can. Yeah, yeah, I'm curious about that. Yeah, this is. Sort of uh, funny. At the time of the discovery, Google had recently installed a tool on employees' web browsers that would flag internal calendar events requiring more than 10 meeting rooms or 100 participants. Many employees believe that the so-called browser extension, which was first reported by Bloomberg, was a surveillance tool designed to crack down on organizing among workers. Because Com it was. Well, yes. The company said at the time that it simply wanted to reduce internal spam and that the tool did not collect personally identifiable information, which sure it didn't. I don't think, which at least in the paragraph before, was not being claimed. Right. It's, it's very much a denial that raises more Your, questions. I was going to say, my <laughs> I do not collect personally identifiable information shirt is bringing up a lot of questions that are already answered by the shirt. Mm -hmm. Anyway, no, so I believe it says in the article that they discovered that IRI was being engaged by Google mm -hmm. because they checked on the uh, the calendar event for a human resources director mm -hmm. or some such, and there was a several-hour meeting with IRI consulting on that person's calendar, which is the last time they're ever going to be able to see that person's calendar right, right. there. Uh, uh, public calendars in the workplace are kind that, of a thing of and, beauty. And I will say that... So uh, according to that article, what happened then is that that extension was installed within hours of that meeting. So they didn't even give the employees like kind of a day or two. No, no, no. Immediately afterwards. And the both Google and IRI had the gall to claim that that meeting had nothing to do with that. I'm, I'm just trying to wrap my head around the, the brain space that <clears throat> is somebody who doesn't think they need to unionize. And then also somebody who lives in this environment where you're like, – I mean, to their credit, they're deeply suspicious of the things management is doing to the point of like looking at the calendar of the person responsible for this <laughs> browser extension. I don't know that they'd be deeply suspicious. I would do it just out of help, sheer nosiness. Like I want to know what everybody's up to. Just well, and again, I, like I think a lot of tech workers have that personality profile because they're also the, ten, the type of people – there's a reason that open company culture is supposed to be an attractor and it's because the view that silicon valley has of itself is that sunlight is the best disinfectant and transparency <laughs> and openness fixes everything and i mean it, it can to some degree but essentially what you're creating is you have a pool of people that you're recruiting from that tend to have very similar views on how much information they should have i.e all of it and what they can do with it, i.e. anything they want, because uh, the third thing that they tend to have in common is what they think of themselves, which is, i.e., masters of the universe and mistresses, to be fair. Mm. Um, so you end up with... <laughs> More mistresses of the universe. <laughs> so you end up with this, this culture that, oh, yes, I should have access to all of this info, blah, blah. And then the moment management kind of does it to you, I think it tells you, it... it, it, it takes away, I think, some of that innocence and some of that naivete about the intentions of your so-called betters. Mm -hmm. it, it tells you that management doesn't consider you any different from the way that you consider, I don't know, like the data assets that you're uh, helping the Department of Defense put together mm -hmm. or something like that. I'm just going to keep reading from the article just because every new paragraph is some new horror story, it seems. Excellent. Uh, this month, two Google employees were 
placed on administrative leave over possible violations of company rules. According to a memo circulated internally and obtained by CNBC, some employees believe the administrative leave was a form of retaliation because the two suspended workers had engaged in activism at the company. Because it was. Mm-hmm. The, the company said the second suspended employee had set up email alerts to track the calendars of several Google officials, which made them feel unsafe, but did not say that setting up such alerts broke company rules. Which, oh, again, is an interesting omission mm-hmm. uh, because all you would have to say, that's a thing. A company can always just say they broke the rules. Mm-hmm. What rule that is, we're not going to tell you, but they broke them. You know? right. You're know, you not allowed to see the rules. They're just there out of frame. <laughs> um, it, so they could have just done that, but they didn't, mm-hmm. which is a right. uh, um, question mark? This there, this change to the staff meetings came because the last such meeting was contentious, is how the New York Times oh, describes it. Uh, employees challenged management about the browser extension and the hiring of a former Department of Homeland Security official how dare they? who had defended a version of the White House's ban on travel from mostly Muslim countries. Oh, they didn't like that? <sighs> huh. Mm. And it created a contentious <laughs> space. Wow. Wow, that's really unexpected. Um, you know. This is a company that you can become a certified educator for. Mm-hmm. And now I'm wondering if, as part of that program, they're, they're trying to give you lesson plans on why surveillance is good, actually, and why we should kick out all these people from but the country. wait, no. The company can do surveillance on the employees all the time and have a browser extension that uh, you know monitors when they do. But one employee puts a Google alert on, "Hey, this guy has a meeting at this time." Like that's not allowed. You're only what the heck? It's it's like a vertical organization thing. You're allowed to snoop on people below you, snooping on the above. You know that that's what that's the whole point of getting promoted. You no longer get snooped on by anyone below you. I'm gonna stop using the word snoop because it's rapidly losing all meaning. Do you want me to continue? <laughs> yes. Yes. Do it. Last month, Google management in Zurich caused an uproar when it tried to cancel an employee discussion about unionization and proposed its own discussion about labor laws and employee rights. <laughs> oh, right. I forgot about that. That was hilarious. Oh, boy. We know what that discussion would have looked like because um, they, they literally would have just walked out with like a union logo and it, then just a big circle with a slash through it. I'm just picturing them rolling out one of those uh, giant TVs that like substitute teachers would use yes. to, yes, to show the, the VHS video of here's what to do if somebody talks to you about unionization. Oh my God. And otherwise it is exact. And, and then it's literally just a stranger danger video, but about unionization. Yeah. Just say no. And it's also presented by the, by the scab rat. Hey kids, want to unionize? Okay, we're going to stop that right <laughs> There. Now, we did not intend this episode to be about Google. We actually wanted to discuss the sorts of companies that uh, these Google hires. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Google <laughs> hires these consultant firms like IRI that companies hire when they are seeking to crush worker power, essentially, yes. and to prevent unions. The kinds of companies that make the videos they show on the VHS yes. tapes. The most useless people on the planet. Like it, it's. I know that's tough competition these days. There are a lot of people vying for that title, but I think we can officially say that consultants are the most worthless industry to have ever existed. It is an industry that is only possible because we have created a world where you can get paid for doing absolutely nothing. They, they provide a service. You, you yeah, describe Noah. it as n- nothing, but it is. Um, the service of helping their employers reduce costs. Yes. I would argue that the service they ultimately provide is simply giving an employer the technical tools. to. They, yes, you're right. They reduce costs, but they especially what they reduce is effort. Because if you have a union busting plan that works, it tends to work for every company because one of the things about unions is that Uh, you were talking about Google employees looking at alternative models of worker power. And one of the nice things about that is that, as we've mentioned on the show before, the Wagner Act enshrined one very specific process Mm -hmm. for how workers get to organize, which at the time seemed like a victory. And now I think maybe in some ways seems a little bit unusually restrictive because it essentially creates one channel 
through which you can do this. And that means that every company can follow the same plan to defeat it. Mm -hmm. So if you're IRI or FDI or LRI or any of these other companies that end in I for some stupid reason, well, it's because it means incorporated, but whatever. Um, If you're any of these companies, if you have a plan that works, you never need to change it. Mm -hmm. So yes, you provide a service, but you are also ironically, okay, fair enough, not the most useless, the laziest industry on the planet. Because they haven't had to change a damn thing in the last, what, 50 years maybe? Just learn to use the internet? Well, there there have been new tactics, like uh, at Delta, where they put up posters saying, you can buy a video game console with the fees that would go towards a union. I like that they said a video game console with the latest hits. <laughs> because no one involved in the making of that poster has ever played a video game since, like, Super Mario, the original one. <laughs> uh, the, the sign specifically says union dues cost around 700 a year there it is. a new video game system with the latest hit sounds like fun put your money towards that instead of paying dues to the union the secret is that if you put that towards the union they can probably get you more than $700 and then you mm-hmm. can have the union which will get you paid more and the benefits which will save you time and increase your quality of life and also you can still buy the video game console I mean, if you think about it, if you're working two thousand hours a year, seven hundred dollars is a matter of, you know, thirty three cents in your paycheck, just about. Yeah, thirty thirty three cents per hour. Right. Which a union would be able to negotiate such. Yeah. A, Number one. I'm reading from a an article in Huffington Post about uh, about Delta's anti union efforts. Um, Delta workers have described a full. Core anti-union press, advertisements playing nonstop in break rooms, <clears throat> weekly anti-union meetings, and stands full of leaflets discouraging unionization. Anti-union videos play by our time clocks. Anti-union literature is distributed in our break rooms. Managers are designated to push the anti-union agenda, and employees are held captive, said Dan McCurdy, a Delta worker and union advocate who stressed he is not affiliated with any union or outside organization. And this is all the result of Delta hiring a firm called FTI, which you mentioned earlier, which does much the same work as IRI. They seek to help businesses avoid the scourge of unions. Yes. And FTI, it should be clear, was founded originally as a firm that provided expert witnesses for litigation purposes. Mm -hmm. And once it became publicly traded, suddenly, which is weird, apparently, for an expert litigation firm, uh, then suddenly became a firm that specializes in this kind of work. How amazing. So so this firm originally, what you're saying is they provided the witnesses that could say, yeah, those, mm-hmm. like in My Cousin Vinny, yeah, those are the tires from that exact model of car, blah, blah, blah. Sorry, I'm just having a hard time wrapping my head around this whole consulting thing is crazy. They also do things beyond just anti-union work. Um, oh, boy. Oh, boy. FTI, uh, based in Washington, D.C., is Great. better known for working on the oil and gas industry's efforts oh, to stymie yes. climate change mm-hmm. policy and counts Chevron, ExxonMobil, Shell, and Halliburton among its clients. So, like, the big three right there. The only one that it's missing from is, like, BP, essentially. Yeah. So, slightly tangential. Oh, boy. (laughs) I love it when I say that. Fire away. Let's go. When I first got out of college, I and I started doing retail, and I was kind of miserable. I got stuck in a rut where I could not think of what else to do because all of the professions that I know about, teacher, doctor, lawyer. The big three. Right. Yeah. What else is there? Like, I was kept hitting this, this, like, brick wall of... What kind of jobs are there out there? And then I find out things like this consulting firm where you can be a consultant that creates basically a brand, a, a company branded package that does anti-union work. Or you could be a, a for hire expert witness for for uh, uh, criminal cases like these are these are fake jobs. These are not real jobs. Right. There <laughs> this is, is no completely fake. What they are is the rough equivalent of. And we talk about capitalism as feudalism a lot on this show, but like there is always money in being a sycophant. There is always money in being an informer. There is always money in serving whatever the rich want, whether that's 
literally beating up the poor because they haven't paid you their millage fees or whether that's being the guy who collects rent and breaks arms or being a tax farmer or whatever the heck it is. Mm -hmm. But there is always, always, always money in serving the interests of the powerful. And that's all these people do. They are nothing but hangers on. They provide negative value right. to the world. But, but but weirdest to me personally is the fact that these these jobs are basic in these professions just exist. Like mm-hmm. I I just can't get in my head what kind of life path you have to take in order to oh I think we're gonna sell get into out that, that later. Are, aren't like we? I just don't understand. <laughs> oh, don't worry. That's we'll going to come along. Oh, boy. Can't wait. I, I, I think what the going thing is that this takes work that might all workers who might otherwise be able to put their skills towards something productive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, like some graphic designer had to make that sign we discussed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Some, so there are web developers working for FTI who make websites like don't risk it, don't sign it.com, which is a very clunky URL. Right. Just awful. So prone to misspelling. Well, did you notice, Mm -hmm. speaking of the graphic designer, that Delta sign was in the Delta font with the Delta color. So it had specific branding to that There were Pantone requirements attached to that thing. In another world, you know, the person who made that is instead just doing advertising for Delta, which isn't great Great. either, but it's It's marginally better. better, Yeah, it's it's not so so close to evil. Well, and... uh, the NFDI also specializes in creating sites that pretend to be journalism. Like, what was it, Western Wire, I yes. believe it was? Western Wire. That's supposed to look like it's a hard-hitting journalism about the about climate and whatnot, when what it really is is a front for oil companies and to allow FDI employees to masquerade as journalists when yep. they're not. Uh, I, I can read from the article. Please um, do. Western Wire, the go-to source for news, commentary, and analysis on pro-growth, pro-development policies across the West that routinely publishes stories styled to look like journalism while boosting oil and gas development and attacking environmental groups. John Hickenlooper's favorite website right there. (laughs) Earlier this year, two of the company's employees posed as reporters to press the general counsel of an environmental group suing ExxonMobil over its role in climate change for an interview a potential violation of public relations industry ethics rules. Oh, please. No, I grew up around public relations industry people. Violations of the ethics rules are approximately as thick as a human hair. That's it. You know, it, it, there are no ethics when your whole job is to lie on behalf of a company. The, there is no soul in that industry from the get-go. When your role is to create credibility for something that has none in the first place. But it is particularly galling to see them, um, I don't know, co-opting this idea that, you know, we're going to get these. uh, uh, So sponsored content is already a thing Mm -hmm. and and whatever. But you could at least argue that, oh, that goes into a news source. And if you learn how to spot it, you can say, okay, well, that's native advertising, whatever. I'm not going to look at it. Mm -hmm. I can still read the rest of the Atlantic, if I feel like it. But if you're creating the news sources, that's on a whole nother level because now everyone else can quote that. Everyone Mm -hmm. else can use that. And suddenly you give it a veneer of Mm -hmm. reality that shouldn't exist. And I I know that that's not new. Uh, You know, we know that these industries will essentially um, create their entire scientific consensus out of whole cloth. But I don't know. There's just something particularly maddening about it being attached to the idea of journalism specifically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And not this will not only be used for anti-union efforts, this will be used for like political misinformation. Mm-hmm. You know, there's mm-hmm. there's any number of purposes this will go towards and none of them are good that yes. I can think of. And it's it's particularly bad because I think back in the day you had explicitly conservative and explicitly partisan mm-hmm. institutes kind of doing this. And then they, I think big corporations kind of realize that you can't trust um, something that is explicitly political mm-hmm. to get that job done because there is a, there is a, a partisan way to get rid of that. Well, there's an expectation on behalf of a lot of people of what a um, objective news right. outlet looks like. Mm-hmm. You know, people... A lot of it's an aesthetic matter, but there's 
People expect some level of neutrality, which is a bad expectation to have because there's no neutrality. But mm-hmm. And thus you have to make your biased partisan outlet look that way, even mm-hmm. if you're, you just want to do what – like we used to have party newsletters in this yep. country, you know? No, that's exactly correct. And at least it was a little more open and you understood where a viewpoint was coming from. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think, uh, what is it, Adam Johnson and uh, Nima Shirazi had citations needed. Yes. They make a big deal about the tone, the supposed neutral tone that mm-hmm. major newspapers and so on employ. But uh, no, that's absolutely correct. There is, I mean, I think you just kind of said why all of these industries exist because there's supposed to be a certain process or a certain aesthetic to the way that a company union busts to mm-hmm. the way that a company does this mm-hmm. or that they're they're supposed to mm-hmm. do it in a certain way because you can't walk out in front of your employees and say i'm gonna fire you all if you try to unionize yeah. but you can walk out there and say i'm we're gonna hire this firm and they're gonna give us some ideas for how to manage labor relations yeah there's an absolute obsession in this country with aesthetics and and the the appearance of professionalism or, or efficiency mm-hmm. or whatever like that. Like if you get a company that is public and then goes private, what they're going to do immediately is they're going to spend a whole bunch of money um, redoing all of the outward facing components mm-hmm. of it. They'll give it a new brand. They'll give uh, like if it's a retail space, they'll give you new stores, um, new logos, new website, everything like that. And then internally slash everything and burn it to the ground. So, and, and people expect that and they say they want it. And then mm-hmm. they're upset when it when quality fails. But it because everything is nice and new and shiny, you know, the idea is who cares? Look at uh, look at friends of the show we work, uh, who <laughs> after getting rid of their uh, I don't know what word to put here, extremely weird uh, chairman of the board uh, just fired uh, something like. 2,000 workers that their whole job is just to clean. Right. But they yeah. rehired they them. them as contractors. Yes. So they gave no, them the option. It was a third-party contract. Right, right, right. So they, they Which were- Which was owned by WeWork. Oh, yes. oh I, did, I missed that part. Oh, I didn't part. know that part. That I believe it was like all within the WeWork bubble, effectively. That makes sense, yeah. They, they were effectively, oh, wow, they shuffled full-time employees into contract positions. Yep. From which, by the way, clever segue, Mm -hmm. um, from which it is harder to unionize because you're no longer fighting WeWork. You are fighting this other company that has access to all of WeWork's resources but can claim to not be the company. Mm -hmm. So, you know, just another layer of uh, fuzzy logic. This has been a very broad segment, but we will, after this break, try to focus in on one of these consultant firms in particular and – See what it is they do for the world. I have very high hopes for that segment. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. It's me. And Lou. Hey, guys. We've been talking about consultant firms and their role in the modern economy. Uh, We talked about how they advise companies on how to best crack down on unionization efforts. And also, they they tend to be behind large-scale layoffs. They they have a nasty habit of showing up in these areas. And we're going to... Use this segment to focus on one company in particular, one of these consultant firms. The The company is named McKinsey, and that's a name that might ring bells for some of our listeners, but might also be new to a lot of you because it was even – I consider myself fairly well-informed, and I wasn't – I knew I'd heard the term McKinsey, but I didn't know what it is they actually do until just reading up this past week or so. Yeah, I didn't know they existed until this morning. I I feel like a lot of people got their first exposure to who McKinsey are and what they do because Democratic presidential candidate Pete Buttigieg uh, proudly touts his experience working for McKinsey as part of his resume and part of the reasons he's qualified to be president. His touting is limited, though, because what he did for the company is covered by an NDA. He can't legally talk about much of 
what he did in his uh, about three years with McKinsey before becoming the mayor of South, South Bend, Bend, Indiana. Which is always a good sign when you can't say literally anything that you did with a company. Um, he's described it as uh, economic stabilization in war zones, which is ah. Uh, ah. just a, a, a cursed sequence of words. Not good. Oh, boy. I was um, just about to make a joke about, uh, oh, yeah, all my accomplishments of this company are just right out of frame. You can't Yeah, say exactly. <laughs> True, uh, use a joke. His work with McKinsey brought him to Iraq and I believe Afghanistan and... So oh you you know what else brought him to Iraq and Afghanistan, right? Like his concurrent military service too. <laughs> Wait, so was he in the military while also working for McKenzie? I don't time? think he was working for both of them. Well, maybe given, given how given how both of these wars have been run, yes, but I don't think that's officially the case. Uh, there's a segment in his book about how his work at McKinsey brought him to a safe house in Iraq, which he doesn't elaborate on. Uh, uh, good? Question mark? No. No? I don't know where to go with this. What could you possibly be doing in a civilian capacity that's not really heckin' well, illegal? Well, okay, so that that pretty much, that blows it open right there, mm-hmm. the whole McKinsey discourse. Because the thing about it is that McKinsey is a very secretive consulting firm. Mm-hmm. They specialize in basically... Restruct debt restructuring, uh, major financial consulting, that kind of thing, uh, it, to the level of countries. You know, it's not – you don't call McKinsey if you're a struggling restaurant. You call McKinsey if you're Ecuador and you're the new president who wants to roll back the reforms that have been done over the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. You call McKinsey if you're a multinational corporation that wants to figure out how he can lay off employees in 21 countries simultaneously. That's what you call McKinsey to do. You don't you don't call them for the little stuff. You call them when you want to save yourself millions of dollars in one fell swoop. Um, I'm gonna and quote, only yourself, I should add. I'm gonna quote from uh, this BuzzFeed article with which came out a week or two ago about the nature of Buttigieg's work with McKinsey and why he can't talk about it. Uh, quote: Buttigieg devoted most of a ten-page chapter in his book to his work at, at McKinsey. Back in the U.S. in 2007, he wrote, I landed a job in Chicago at McKinsey & Company, and my classroom was everywhere. A conference room, a serene corporate office, the break room of a retail store, a safe house in Iraq, Ah. or an airplane seat, any place that could accommodate me and my laptop. Oh, no. That's... I hate this. Terrible. Like, there's so much wrong with that. The everywhere is my classroom... Well, really? I think, is he saying that he's learning or he's teaching? That's the question I have about that. Um, continuing from the article, McKinsey had U.S. defense contracts in Afghanistan and Iraq under the Task Force for Business and Stability Operations, ABC mm-hmm. News reported in June, though it's not clear Buttigieg was involved with these specific projects. He later served in Afghanistan as a Navy officer. So, there it is. Wow. Yeah, it's uh, with... Again, this is what McKinsey does. They're they're kind of shadowy and they generally Kinda. well, yes. But so Ryan, a theme you essay yes. on this show, what look at that, the tables oh, have turned <laughs> is is uh the idea that corporations are private governments at this point. That okay. that we yeah. are willing to take uh or to assign governmental powers to corporations in a way that we would never think of assigning them to the legislature or the executive. And McKinsey is absolutely a shadow government firm. They are the equivalent of uh, putting, uh, you know, they're the kind of person that in um, in one of these like gritty comics or movies or whatever, their character is supposed to be the expert who knows exactly what to do and knows all the right people to get it done. And you don't want to ask them how they get it done because you don't want to know the methods mm-hmm. that they use. But the ends will justify them. Right. You know, the, the eventual gains. And the problem with that is that, of course – uh, the the kind of people that are going to be attracted to companies like McKinsey, um, how do I put this? Tend to be very dead eyed uh, Wall Street types mm-hmm. who have very infinitesimal consciences about the consequences of their actions. So far with McKinsey, what I have come to the conclusion, like so much of 2019, if you wrote a movie or piece of fiction that used McKinsey as the villain. Uh, people would say that's too on the nose and you need to scale it back. 
Like and everything they, else going and on. And they have. Year. That's the thing. Like the villains of movies and sci-fi stories and whatnot in the 80s and 90s were companies like this. Mm-hmm. And then we l- let them make it real. That's the worst part. Um, there, there was an article in The Baffler by a anonymous former McKinsey employee who had come to see their work as immoral and the company as a whole as a force for bad in the world. Um, Quoting from near the beginning of what is a lengthy article, McKinsey is capitalism distilled. It is global, mobile, flexible, and unabashedly pro-market and pro-management. The firm has an enormous stake in things continuing more or less as they are. Working for all sides, McKinsey's only allegiance is to capital. As capital's most effective messenger, McKinsey has done direct harm to the world in ways that, thanks to its lack of final decision-making power, are hard to measure, and thanks to its intense secrecy, are hard to know. That's the thing. They can hang out. They, they are literally out of frame. Yeah. They are the people that are never in the photo when you sign the law that, um, you know, uh, slashes pension funds. They're never the people. Deliberately so. Exactly. You are, they are never the people in the room when you actually say that we're going to close hundreds of schools. Yeah. They're never actually there when it comes time to make the horrible decisions. But they did all of the prep work to get to the point where that decision is supposed to be the only the necessary and the only possible one. They specialize in reducing the possible to a narrow set of ideals that always end up favoring the existing powers that be, the existing capital. That's the exact thing. So it struck me in the the previous segment too that these consulting firms, by and large, and I think you'd be very hard-pressed to find one that does anything other, is they are defenders of the status quo. They exist so that the people in power can keep things exactly the way they are. And it's telling that it takes so much effort and additional capital in order to keep things exactly the way they are. Like this is not a natural state. It requires an additional industry in order to enforce it. Well, when you say that they keep things as they are, the the reason they do that is because the people with the money to hire a consultant firm mm-hmm. like things as they are. Exactly. Yeah, it's working um, for them. One thing that I didn't get to say in the first segment, which I think is true of most of these consulting firms, is that the real reason you hire a consulting firm is to tell you what you already want to hear. They they come in and they tell you, no, your employees don't need a union. No, you should lay off these employees. No, you should take away their pensions. No, you should do this. You're absolutely right. They are basically there as a balm for your massively, massively gnawing conscience in most cases. Even, again, about the small stuff, what consultants are there for is just to convince you that the evil thing you are about to do is the correct thing to do. And ultimately... Consult that makes consulting just another form of wage theft because your employees could be doing that work as part of their job. They should be doing that work. They know the work best. But if you're a capitalist, you're obviously better than them. So you're not going to take their word for it. You're going to hire somebody else who gets paid more money than them, who has no relationship to the work site, no relationship to the jobs that they're doing. But of course, because they're paid, you know, six, seven figures a year, they must know what they're talking about because otherwise, why would they be paid that well? It, it's a perfect distillation of all of the horrible, horrible currents that we have talked about on this show, of all really what anti-workerism is. Mm-hmm. To uh, continue from that Baffler article and to touch on what you just said, uh, quote, the people who enlist its services and pay its fees fall firmly on one side of the labor management divide. McKinsey will never make a recommendation that truly threatens its core audience. Any analysis is bounded. Searching for cost savings, any, everything is on the table except executive bonuses, of course. Mm-hmm. They, they tell their hirers what they want to hear. You know? Yeah, of course they do. Otherwise, this wouldn't be an industry. If you, if you were actually required as a consulting firm to provide any kind of objective analysis that had pros and cons for everything and make a recommendation that had no ideology behind it, number one, you'd be an impossible construct. Mm-hmm. But even if you were one, you'd never get hired. There would be no point because – To do that, a company could just do that itself. The reason consulting firms exist is to be sycophantic. There is no other reason for them to be there. Now, we want to make what McKinsey does a little more concrete. Please do. So um, 
do you want to talk about uh, their efforts in Puerto Rico, oh, Noah? Uh, <laughs> okay, so the monkey's ball curled real fast that time. <laughs> uh, no, I knew this was coming. So McKinsey is, so for those of you who don't know, quick preview of the situation, Puerto Rico is screwed. Uh, it's dead. It, it picked up billions and billions of dollars in outside debt, basically, and uh, tried to cover that via massive bond issues that there was no way they could recoup the profit on. And this is over several gubernatorial administrations from both major parties on the island. You don't need to know any of this. But the point is that there is a general situation that every member of the Puerto Rican political class was involved in creating. Mm-hmm. Now we're at the point where the, the, the vultures are circling mm-hmm. and the corpse of the Puerto Rican government has to figure out whom to pay, how much to pay them, and how, in what way to pay them. Mm -hmm. And McKinsey is one of the major um, companies that has been contracted to advise entities like the Puerto Rican government, like the Fiscal Oversight Board that is the actual Puerto Rican government, uh, despite being unelected and uh, having no interest of the Puerto Rican people. I I just note that they didn't seem to have any trouble finding out how to pay McKinsey. Right. So that's where I'm going with this, right? The the government, the oversight board, all of these people, they were perfectly fine paying McKinsey. They were perfectly fine exempting McKinsey from any disclosure requirements when they signed up as advisors to the board, which is interesting because would you believe McKinsey itself holds Puerto Rican debt? So on the one side, it's supposed to be telling the government and the oversight board how to save the most possible money, how to essentially stiff its creditors, who deserve to be stiffed. But on the other, well, actually, sorry, let me make a crucial distinction here. Most of its creditors, there are a number of bondholders who are literally just Puerto Rican retirees who are getting screwed on both ends of this deal, no matter how that happens. Uh, no matter how the other people get paid, they're going to get pennies on the dollar. But on the one side, McKinsey is supposed to be telling the Puerto Rican government, here's how you restructure and file for bankruptcy and all this. Oh, wait, you can't do that. Uh, here's how you figure this out. Here's how you crawl out of this hole with the least amount of damage. And on the other side, their interest is explicitly how much money can we squeeze out of the Puerto Rican government those two things could not be more perpendicular. And yet McKinsey is being allowed to do both and, in fact, was allowed to do both in secret by the Puerto Rican government and by the United States Congress. Yeah. Uh, just going to read from the New York Times about this. In a normal American bankruptcy proceeding, such a conflict would need to be disclosed to the court and to the public. But the legal framework established by Congress to deal with Puerto Rico's financial collapse, territory has $123 billion in debts, has left out the disclosure rules. Right. Because McKinsey wants to ensure that, once again, when they get paid, they're not going to be in the room with the governor signing, you know, they're not going to be getting the pen. Those used to sign whatever the ugh, whatever the mm. name of the law is. They don't want to be in front of Congress when the Committee on Insular Affairs decides that, sadly, we're just going to have to actually formally declare martial law on the island or whatever they do. I mean, there was a plan that was released, I want to say this very week, um, by the Fiscal Oversight Board, I believe, with McKinsey's advice, that would raise electricity prices on the island, which are already prohibitively high, 47% over the next five years. Jesus. And they're doing this because advisors like McKinsey said, no, you need to privatize this, you need to raise this tax, you need to do that. Not, not figure out, not increase revenue streams into the island, not get rid of some of this debt by, you know, doing the thing that every other corporation and governmental entity in the United States is allowed to do, but Puerto Rico is specifically not by an act of Congress. None of that. There has been no effort by McKinsey to lobby Congress on behalf of the island. There has been no effort by McKinsey to make sure that quality of life is maintained on the island. They are there to hollow out Puerto Rico Mm -hmm. so that it can become a playground for rich white Americans. And they are using, as the New York Magazine article that you sent us shows, Mm -hmm. they are using Puerto Ricans who work for McKinsey to do it. Because that's the thing about McKinsey, too. It specializes in creating bootlickers, is what it does. Mm -hmm. It specializes in creating people who have no allegiance beyond capital. I I can't really (laughs) add to that (laughs) beyond what, what you've said. But to put a dollar amount on McKinsey's role, and this is from an article from last September, so you can figure these numbers have gone up. McKinsey has so far received 
$50 million in fees to advise Puerto Rico's Federal Oversight Board on drafting a blueprint for the island's fiscal affairs over the next decade. Later in the article, it notes that it owns at least $20 million and possibly considerably more of the securities that Puerto Rico owes. And that even if it gets paid, uh, I don't remember the exact figures, but if it gets paid at the, the plans that it was advising uh, Puerto Rico to pay out at, there were two options. One pays at like 39% of face value. The other pays at 56%. I don't remember. But the point is, in either case, McKinsey would actually get paid more than what it's supposed to get because of some weird financial loophole. Funny how that works. Interesting, yeah. Somehow one place gets more money than it's owed, and then the other place can't get any of the money that it needs. And I should also note, as a bit of a news hook, uh, yesterday, I believe it was during the Harvard and Yale game, students from both schools stormed the field and actually sat in protest of what the New York Times and several other major media outlets reported was exclusively about climate change, but which was actually an attempt to get both universities to divest from not only the fossil fuels industry, but from any uh, both universities hold Puerto Rican debt as well. And the students were trying to get them to cancel it. They won't, but they were trying. So thank you. It's... um. It's nice to see that even in New Haven and Cambridge, there are people trying to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. But it's, I mean, this is the thing with companies like this. We are circumscribed in how much we can say about them because we don't, because of the NDAs, because of the secret of culture, because this is a company that people call, the its own employees call the firm, like it's a soccer rivalry. Mm-hmm. It, it's... It, it like cre- it's a John Grisham novel. Yes. yes. I, I think that might be the better <laughs> yes. reference point. But there's there's all of this secrecy about it. And as we said, they try to never be there. So they operate in a way that makes it impossible to directly know which parts of it, which part of the pie they put their finger in. Mm-hmm. You know it's in there somewhere. Yeah. You just don't know. You know, you can't see the pie to carry on this metaphor. And so we have to kind of assume that they were responsible for all of it. And they could help by having a more open company culture like uh, Google, uh, which is a very relative open right there. Fun fact uh, that uh, Google CEO, CEO that uh, Sunday Pinchai. Sundar Pichai? Yeah. He used to work no, at McKinsey. No. Oh, my God. <laughs> But, I mean, wow. that's the thing. Who hasn't among this class, right? They're basically like uh, – I'm trying to think of what the, the equivalent here would be. But they're sort of the place where you go to create. They, they are the CEO factory. They're like the, the initiation into the CEO class. They create people who have no relationship to the real world. Because, I mean, I don't know if you've seen – uh, Buttigieg's policy proposals, but they make no sense outside of a company like McKinsey. To the point that they create the CEO class that more than 70 past and present Fortune 500 CEOs are McKinsey alumni, and the odds of a McKinsey employee becoming a public company CEO are the best in the world, one out of 690. Tremendous. Its alumni include Sheryl Sandberg and Chelsea Clinton, Google CEO Sundar Pinchai, and, f- and former Enron CEO Jeff Skilling. And unfortunately, God help us all, Houston Astros general manager Jeff Lano. Seriously? Yep. Oh, no. Kill Is this me. the nail in the coffin? I'm, I'm. It I'm, might be. I'm hurt. Um, th- this baffler piece really goes into how they get so many young people to work for them, which is they recruit at like the elite law schools of America and they they, they pitch to their future CEOs the opportunity to do good in the world, to uh, do economic stabilization in war zones or what have you. Because Every, sorry, every time somebody says economic stabilization in war zones, I get real uncomfortable real fast. The, the pucker factor is very high. It's super high. It's very high. Good Lord. It is very unfortunate the, the way that we have this um, – because the thing with law schools, right, is that you go into a crazy amount of debt mm-hmm. in the hopes of one day making that all back. But, of course, the only uh, the only kind of, of law practices that are going to reward that are like high-powered corporate law, things like that. So when the McKinsey recruiter comes along and says, well, how about instead of 
being a soulless advocate for a corporation, you be a soulless advocate for the forces of neoliberalism. Of course, they're not going to say it like that, but that is what they're doing. You're going to pick that because at least then you're thinking, oh, I get to change history. I get to, you know, create the new world that I want to live in. I'm going to quote from this Baffler piece. Uh, College seniors with a McKinsey offer can accurately make a two-year commitment, learn useful skills, gain an impressive network, and gold stamp their resume before joining the Peace Corps and returning to their previously planned career of do-goodery. Beyond the skill building, McKinsey markets itself as a place to do good while you're there. Two of the four practice cases on its interviewing page are in the social public sector, despite less than 10% of the firm's work coming from those sectors. What a surprise. They lie. Who knew? Um, Also, the Peace Corps should really ban any McKinsey alumni (laughs) from being allowed into the agency. I feel like that might be half the problem that that agency has right now, right there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, it makes sense because if you're – if you want to be a Peace Corps volunteer in this day and age, that agency is extremely poorly run, and those assignments vary heavily in what you're allowed to do and how much good you can actually do. So it makes sense that a bunch of people would go having built up a war chest from being – sorry, maybe the wrong word – having built up some savings from their time with, again, a soulless consulting firm. Because the thing about it is you go in wanting to do good, and then you know, 20 years later, you're suggesting uh, – what was it? Like – we have to means test student loan for get, uh, free public college so that the mm-hmm. rich don't go there because you know mm-hmm. all those rich kids who go to state college all the time. Or, or if you do happen to stay at McKinsey, you end up being the type of person who is advising companies on how best to lay off employees. You know, because mm-hmm. that's what a they large do. part of what McKinsey does. Yeah, and, and that just goes back to what we're saying that their whole most. I would gather that most of our listeners are never actually going to meet somebody who works for this organization. You know, that's not what the, what most of us do, but companies like this operate in, they have an influence on your workplace, whether you like it or not, because even if they're not directly shutting down union efforts or causing layoffs at your company, the fact that they are doing it to other companies means that eventually your company has to do it to keep up. One thing that I remember one of the first sort of uh, tech episodes that we did, Earl mentioned that the thing with capitalism is that it's an effective race to the bottom. <laughs> if, if one company does something that is Uh, shady or not good, everyone else has to do it just to keep up, right? And much the same way, if McKinsey tells one company, hey, you could save all this money by slashing pensions, here's how you do it legally, and you do this, and you do this, and you do that, and before you know it, you've discovered a new type of touchscreen, and you can bounce right back without any of your employees. I'm not making any specific references at all, (laughs) but if one company gets to do that, then every other company is suddenly looking at that model and saying, oh, that works. We could do that and too. And McKinsey can offer their services to that and company. And there you go. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. The, the because ba- if not, they'll sue you. Yeah. The Baffler article uh, closes with this, which I think sort of um, really emphasizes the point you just made. With another heavyweight on the side of management, McKinsey tipped the scale even further away from labor, contributing directly to the increase in wealth inequality plaguing the world. Governments are now more similar to the private sector and more reliant on their services. The best and the brightest devote themselves to client service instead of public service. Not all of those results are wholly attributable to McKinsey. There are many conspirators to these crimes, but no firm has touched more and been seen less. Mm-hmm. Amen. Great. It's so awesome that we gave the unaccountable CIA so much power in the world. Well, the thing, yeah, I mean. The even more unaccountable CIA. I think if you talk to the average person, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. this is not the direction that the average person would have taken our economy Mm. and the world. This is, yet again, another thing that's been manufactured by the interests of capital and those with power. And now that we're fully in the swing of it and can't do a dang thing about it, uh, now we're now they have they feel comfortable enough to perk their little slimy mm-hmm. heads above above the the surface of the swamp and and show us what they are because we can't do anything about it, right. No, that's exactly correct because if you look at – that's why they have to operate in the shadows in the first place. Right. Because if you work for one of these companies, Mm -hmm. who are your friends? 
everyone else who works for those companies. Mm -hmm. You can't sit there as a McKinsey employee and hang out with, first of all, you're not going to be neighbors with blue collar people because Mm -hmm. they're obviously going to be beneath you because they actually work with their hands. But second of all, you're not going to hang out with them. You're not going to hang out with a person that one day you might have to fire, or maybe you do. I don't know. You might be sociopathic enough for that. (laughs) But that's the, they have to create this own separate little community. And again, that just keeps coming back to the fact that somebody like the the McKinsey analyst that's profiled in the article about Puerto Rico um, doesn't seem to understand. Like he has no bearing on the reality of what is going on because he's seeing everything through McKinsey tinted glasses. Yeah, and it's 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 all the the math, the the nefariousness of math. They, they, they pitch themselves as uh, <laughs> math is evil. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> As data-driven? Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Well, the math is just there, and it's just math, and you can't do anything about it. Sabermetrics, but for <laughs> the economy, yeah. No, I completely yeah. agree. It, it hollows out the actual reality at the core of it all. Yeah. It, it makes it seem like there's no decisions to be made. Right. Uh, the article notes that one of like their sayings there is that they don't do policy, just execution. Yeah, they don't. They just carry things out. So what I'm There's hearing no... is McKinsey kills people? Uh, the the <laughs> article, uh, the headline for the piece is uh, McKinsey is capital's best ex- executioner. Possibly, yeah. So literally, nice. but yeah, it's there's if there's if it's just numbers, if it's just rational, cold numbers, then there's no moral argument. There's no ethical dilemma in it in the decisions. Mm-hmm. It's just what's overall best. You can assign a value to certain outcomes, and then just whatever outcome is. Has numeric- the highest value. Yeah, it has yeah. the numerically the superior. That's the one you go with. It, it's even if it causes the immiser- immiseration of billions of people. To the uh, point about uh, McKinsey killing people. The, <laughs> oh boy, the firm was in the news recently thanks to a report it made on the social social media reaction to Saudi Arabian austerity policies. The report identified Twitter users who led criticism of the measures, and according to the New York Times, after a report was issued, the users were reportedly surveilled or arrested. Following the assassination and dismemberment of journalist Jamal Khashoggi, many U.S. firms and CEOs boycotted the Saudi Arabia Future Investment Initiative, known as Davos in the Desert. Oh, yes. I remember this. McKinsey, along with many other top consultant firms, however, remained knowledge partners. Knowledge partners. Knowledge partners. Huh. Not too much knowledge partners, yeah. I would argue. Um, j- just as a final note on McKinsey, uh, there, there's this anecdote. When Mitt Romney spoke to the Wall Street Journal editorial board during his 2008 presidential campaign, he said, so I would probably have super cabinet secretaries or at least some structure that McKinsey would guide me to put in place. I'm not kidding. I would probably bring in McKinsey. Ugh. D- I can't think of a better way to summarize what this company is and what they do than the fact that Mitt Romney wanted to have them play a large role in his potential presidential administration. Good Lord. Noah, are you going to be okay? Noah? Before Noah (laughs) uh, offs himself, (laughs) I do want to note that Today is the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. If you're listening to this on the radio, we do hope that all our listeners have a happy Thanksgiving. But the day after Thanksgiving is Black Friday, and we want to extend our solidarity to the workers who have to work on Black Friday. And, and on Thanksgiving. Yes, and that, Thanksgiving, that too. Yeah. And just say, t- if you're listening, don't make them work harder. Yeah. Don't be, don't be what What's like a safe word that we can use here? A jerk. Yeah, yeah don't, be, don't a be a jerk. jerk. Be yeah. nice to them. It, I've worked many a Black Friday. I've talked about it before. Um, definitely should go check out our Black Friday episode. If I you're believe trying. it was called Abolish Black Friday, <laughs> yeah. which we should. Which we should. Um, it, yeah, more it's, than ever. It's miserable. It's terrible. For every person who has been shopping since 6 a.m. and it's now 10 p.m., there's a worker there who did not have the choice to go home. Just don't do it. <laughs> don't, and, don't go out. And beyond just the retail mania, there's also now increasingly like the stress that this season puts on delivery workers and the mm-hmm. people who work at Amazon warehouses. So I don't know the extent to which you can be considerate with your Christmas shopping, but it might be useful to keep those people in mind as you mm-hmm. go about your business. Remember, these companies keep claiming that we're the ones driving the bus. 
So if we can drive it at, I'm not saying that they're right. They're obviously lying. But if, <laughs> We're the uh, ones being the customers, right? Yes. But if maybe we um, drive it a little bit slower, at least they won't get so rich off of it. That would be nice because ultimately, yes, you might get that one TV at your local retail giant um, that's discounted 75%. But for that mania, you're causing a whole bunch of trouble. And honestly, ultimately, that company is just feeding on your desire to be a consumer and, mm. and feed the desire that they've created. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a zero win situation, frankly. Mm-hmm. Man, I thought this would lift us up following the McKinsey break. <laughs> uh, happy Thanksgiving, y'all. Yeah. Uh, no, don't be a jerk to workers. There, boom, lifted. <laughs> For this week, I'm Ryan. I'm Lou. I was Noah. This was Punching Out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out, and remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.